This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. World War II tank gunner Don Evans sat down with the American Veterans Project, which was created by Congress to collect and preserve the first-hand accounts of wartime vets. After being severely wounded in battle, Don became a prisoner of war. This is his story. You know, the war is winding down, but you don't think it'll ever be over. You just don't. And there wasn't any solid line of defense with the Germans anymore from the North Sea in Holland to, to Switzerland. A lot of that was broken up and it was just solid places, you know. And uh, we crossed the Rhine River, and I remember coming down the bank on that pontoon bridge, and it was way across there. I think it was either 1,100 feet or 1,700 feet was the length of that bridge. And you come down on that pontoon bridge, and it goes down in the river a little bit, and it's wide, and it's deep, and it's running. And then you're afraid, man, Jerry's going to shell it while you're on the bridge. And, but we finally got across there, and uh, then they gave us a mission to go on. There was a big canal there called the Dortmund-Ems Canal. It was in that part of Germany where Essen is and Dortmund. It's all built up, a lot of manufacturing, <clears throat> one town after another. And Jerry had blown all the main bridges, not only the primary but the secondary, most of the third-class bridges. But our job was to go in this area. They thought there was some bridges there that were wouldn't hold a tank or a vehicle, but maybe a farmer's bridge where you get some infantry across. Once you get the infantry across, then you can get a little landing place there and the engineers could put up a new bridge. And, but there was three bridges that they had given us. The first two we went to were blown. And then we went to the other area and I could see down along the canal, that bridge was still intact. But we then we started firing, everybody starts firing in case there's some Germans around that bridge, and when they see us coming, they'll blow it. You, you kind of think the firing down there will keep them down, you know, and they won't blow it. But then we got almost onto it, that, then that thing blew up. And then we called in and told them what had happened, you know, and we didn't have anything else. And so then they told us to come on in, and wherever headquarters was that time was in another little town. And it got to be dark. And we were, once you get into Germany, you know, when you're in France, Belgium, and Holland, you know, they're allies. You treat the country nice and the people nice. But when you cross that border into Germany, it's different then, man. What is German is German. And what is, no, what is American is American. What is German is American. You take whatever you just want. And when you first got into Germany, the looks they gave you, you know, they left you know, you're not wanted here, you know, and they don't smile or nothing. And you, you just go into their homes and or whatever you see, you know, you just take. And like I say to GIs, he's after everything. There was pots and pans hanging on tanks and vehicles and you saw the infantry carrying this and that that they'd take out of German homes. When you dig a hole in the ground, you'd go in the German house, man, get yourself a nice blanket to put in there on the dirt and stuff. It was different then, man. <clears throat> and they couldn't believe it, man. 
you had come 5,000 miles and finally you're in their homeland. And uh, some of them would, were kind of nice to you. Of course, the German, they're the American too, you know, he's always after the ladies. So then they put out the non-fraternization law. Did you ever hear the guys talk about that? And that came out. And so, of course, a lot of the GIs, they wouldn't pay any attention to that. And I don't know what the fine was if you got caught. It was either $35 or $65 that they would take out of your pay, you know, if you got talking to a German civilian. So that's the way it was when you, when you got into Germany. But then anyway, they called us back, and that night we were in this German house. They're in part of the house, and we just go in. And, uh, but before that, before we had gotten the Rhine River, we, were, we got to the Rhine River and we were called back. And we went into a German house. Big, big house. The house and the barn is under the same roof. And we, we just take over the bedrooms and the big kitchen. And the Germans, they could have one of the kitchens in the, the other part of the house, you know, but we would take over so we'd have a place to sleep and we would cook in the kitchens. That's what we were doing this night after we had uh, got up there to the, to the canal. And uh, then the, the order came down, they were hollering, stand to alert. When they hollered, stand to alert, the GI cusses like he never cussed before. This is one of the, the things out in Hollywood, the guy said, did you cuss? I said, yeah, we cussed. It was the first language most of the time. <laughs> when they holler, stand to alert, it means get all your equipment together, man, we're moving out. And man, we, we thought we were going to have a nice night. And then the orders come down. They said that now we're going to be pulling out of here and we're going on a mission tonight. We're going behind the enemy lines. And... Uh, you, nobody's going to be out there but jury, and it's going to be dark. And with some kind of, they don't tell you what the mission is. But they said time was the, the essence. And they said if we run into any action till daybreak tomorrow or whenever this mission is done, if you can't knock, get out of it, knock it off, pull out and go. Just let it behind you. Don't, don't spend any time trying to find jury or knocking him out. Just try to get around him to go on with the mission. We did find out later on what the mission was. So then we we mounted up, and we had uh, I guess the, earlier that afternoon we went through some of them barns. You're always scrounging around, not only looking for something to eat or something to drink, but maybe some juries that are hiding out. And you run into a lot of alcohol, home brew and stuff. And some of it came in, in jugs, man, this high. The basket whipped around them. And then you'd, you'd get in there and pour it out into something small and pour it into little things and stack it in every little place in your tank, you know. And that's what we done. We, we had every empty spot in the tank, man. And all the vehicles, too, man. Bottles of schnapps. And you're listening to World War II tank owner Don Evans who had become a prisoner of war, we love having you hear these stories direct. When we continue, more in Tank Hunter Don Evans here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with tank gunner Don Evans and his World War II narrative. When we last left off, Don and his men were on a reconnaissance mission to locate and secure one of the few bridges in town that the Germans hadn't yet blown up. So we pull out and it's dark and uh, no action yet. And I'm sitting in the gunner seat. We had lost a guy the day before, so I didn't have a loader. But the, the tank commander who was sitting down front came up and sat in the gunner seat alongside of me. So we're going along, it must have been about 11 o'clock at night, I guess. And here come a, a German freight train coming down on the right side of the road, coming out of Germany. He didn't know how far the Americans were up there. We didn't know that they were coming either. But that tra- train was coming down there and everybody just swung their guns around there and shot that thing up. You know, and somebody must have put a big shell in the boiler and it blew up and you could hear Jerry screaming and hollering. But we didn't go near there and, you know, there's big fires down there and then the orders came to move on. So we went on and we stopped at 5.30 in the morning. And uh, we got out of the tanks, everybody just piles out. And just threw all caution to the wind. It's just unbelievable. There wasn't any action during the night. We just didn't think there was going to be any. So we stopped to take a 15-minute break, give the vehicle a break and the men to take a break. So I pile out of the vehicle, and gunners hang out with gunners and drivers with gunners or drivers and so forth, you know. That's how you buddy up and carry on, get along. So coming up alongside of my tank was a guy, this guy from New Britain, Connecticut Vince. And we were smoking there, and generally, and it just started to get daylight, barely daylight. You know, you're very careful if you smoke at night. You know, you're smoking like this, covering the, the cigarette, you know. But I don't think that we had, it wasn't really dark yet, but, but we, we weren't paying any attention to it. And so then you have little stoves in a vehicle about that high, and gasoline, you pump them up. And, Put your canteen cup on there with the water in it and make your coffee. So that's what we done. We said, well, let's go back here and see Jim Cherry. So we're walking down the road. All our vehicles are lined up and everybody's out on the road. It's a very narrow blacktop road. And uh, we get near Jim Cherry. They had a big Sherman tank with 105 on it, artillery piece. They got the Shermans when we got the the light tanks, before they had a light tank. So I see Jim up on the turret, and he's grabbing the 50, and he swings that around, you know, and he starts firing. And here comes a German truck up the side of the road. He may, Maybe he was in our column all night after dark, nobody paid him mind. I don't know. And maybe he stayed in the column. Of, I, I, I don't know. But when he saw that, the truck swerved over and turned over on its side. Well, then all the GIs there, they're over there rooting through the truck to see what they can find. The driver is dead, but they pull the assistant driver out. So then they, the trash is all over the road there. I mean, just crazy. And uh, so then the order come to mount up. We had to go on. So I'm standing up in the turret of the tank. My, uh, my loader, who was a tank commander, he said, well, you, you got some sleep during the night. Now I'll take a nap. 
down in front in the light tanks, there's two seats, there's a driver and assistant driver. They're like little stuffed chairs, not very big, but they're comfortable. And you could sleep in those. So he went down and got in there. And I said, oh, I don't think we'll need the way things are going. John won't need you. So then a Jeep calls up alongside the, our tank. And uh, it was out of the scout section. In the scout section, your your platoon is <clears throat> broken up into the armored car section with the tank and the artillery section and the scout section. They have jeeps. So there's a guy when it jeep stopped. There's a guy sitting there in the assistant driver's seat. His name is Shorty Mercer. Shorty was the kind of guy he'd been in the army a thousand years. You know he'd never learned how to soldier, but everybody loved him. He was a little rotund guy. His cigarette was always hanging down in his mouth, you know, and always smoking. And his hat was always went down over his face, bumping on his nose. He was like that wherever you'd see him. And he would be always singing, uh, he was from the South, and he was always singing the uh, Big Bouquet of Roses or Walking the Floor Over You, something like that, you know, hillbilly guy. And he said, hey, you need a gunner, a loader up there, don't you? I said, nah, I'm all right, shorty. He said, oh, let me up there. I said, what do you want up here for? And he said, I said, it's cold up here like it is in a Jeep. He said, yeah, but I'll be out of the wind. I said, well, oh, come on up there. And so he gets up and he sits and gets in the, the loader seat, which is to my right. I'm sitting on the left. And we go through the thing about loading the gun. He didn't have to do anything, really. When I would fire the big gun, I'd just pull the handle, the breech would pop open, the empty would come out, and all he'd have to do is throw the other one in, and I'd go like that, you know. So he got up, and he got in, got in there, and we talked a little bit, and, and then we're still sitting on the street, on the, the road, and, and here comes a platoon later from the head of the column, and I see him coming, I, was, I didn't even know what he wanted, and I knew that he didn't want me. So he gets alongside of our tank, and you know, and he looks up, and he said, where's Sergeant Selby? I said, down front. I said, he wants to take a break. And he said, well, that's okay, Evans. He said, now we're just going down here. There's little bridges down here. We want to see if they're going to be heavy enough or strong enough to hold the tanks. He said, and now he said, and I said, he said, then, he said, you know, everybody gets a chance to go first. He said, now it's your turn to go first. Well, nobody wants to go first. Nobody. And I said, yes, sir. He said, have your driver get out and go to the head of the column. So I hollered down to the driver, was Harold Asher, was from Kansas City, Michigan. I said, did you get the good news? Then he starts swearing. I said, do what he says, pull out and go to the head of the column. We pulled out and went to the head of the column, then we started out. We hadn't gone uh, 50 feet, I guess. And I saw a big red flash on the right side of the road. It just big ball of fire lit up. I jumped down, dropped down in the in my seat, and you do like you always do. You lean forward to look into the sights. Your right hand, left hand goes to your switches. You grab the turret switch, it's like a pistol grip. If you turn it left and right, that's the way the turret will go. But the more you turn it left and right, the faster it'll turn. Plus, for your two guns in your turret, you have the triggers on top of that. In other words, you can grab that thing, 
you had two triggers you pressed down with the thumb. So just about I'd lean forward, that thing had hit, the, hit that turret. Lit up the inside of that turret. Man, that turret got, got cherry red. And right away, our guys started firing on the Germans. And a lot of firing going on. The Germans were firing back. And then, when there was a couple of minutes, our guys done what we were told to do to break it off. So they broke off the fire and went on. So Asher, the driver, had bailed out, so I bailed out. And I knew I was hurt, but I didn't know that I couldn't see. And But I knew, I was pretty sure that where that, turret, that shell had hit, it had killed Shorty. I'd jump out on the sponsor and I'd jump as far as I could to get away from the tank. The tank's burning. And down in the ditch. And Asher is in the ditch. And now the ammo is starting to go off in the tank. And the Germans aren't even coming to us. I hear the Germans talking. And I'm laying there in the ditch. And I really thought I was going to die. I really wanted to die. I thought if I looked that bad the way I thought I felt, you know, I didn't want to go back home. And then I thought... We are behind the lines, and our guys are going. Nobody will find our bodies. Nobody, my family will never know what happened to me. So then we're laying in the ditch, and the Germans still haven't come for us. But everything's quiet, except the fire burning in the tank. And I knew we were going to be taken prisoner. So I'm going with my hands in my jacket pockets here, pulling out some medals that I had taken off a jury the day before. I knew if they caught me with that stuff, it would be bad news. So then, just, the Germans are still talking, but nobody's coming for us. And you're listening to Don Evans, a POW tank gunner. Oh my goodness, the story doesn't get more compelling than this. Side in the road, in a ditch, he can hear the Germans. He knows he's going to get taken prisoner. He's wondering if, well, if he dies, and he'll ever be able to claim his body, being that he's 5,000 miles from home. More from Don Evans, his story in his own words, here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories with World War II tank hunter Don Evans. When we left off, Don's tank had been hit by turret fire, and he was now laying in a ditch beside it with another soldier as they waited for the Germans to approach. So I said to Asher, how do I look? I wasn't hurting, not much. And he didn't say anything. I said, how do I look? And he said, you look awful or something to that effect. The first time he went answered, then I asked him again. So then he's, I said, well, go in my first aid kit and take my, you had a first aid kit on your belt. It had a little packet of sulfur powder in there. And besides a couple other things, I said, well, get that sulfur powder and sprinkle it on my face. So he'd done that, and then we laid there, and 
And then I, then I didn't want to die. I just had a desire, man, for some reason I, I wanted to live. But I just couldn't figure out why aren't the juries coming for us? Our guys are going. So then I, I said to Asher, we ought to try to get out of here. And he said, no, we can't get out. And about that time, he says, here comes a German officer. So all drivers carry 45s and shoulder holsters. So of course, when he bailed out, he had his, his 45. So he says, here comes that German officer. And when the German officer is coming, then I hear him challenge him to put up his hands. Handy hock is the word. You don't pronounce it like that, I guess. That's not the German pronounce. But the jury knows what you're saying. And as soon as he says handy hawk, I guess the jury went for his gun or something. Harold, Harold Asher shoots him and kills him. And still they don't come for us. And now I know we're dead. He shot that German officer. I know there's no way out, man. We're, we're going to die right here. But we laid there a few minutes and still no jury. Tank's burning. And I said to Asher, we got to get out of here. The tank's going to blow up. I said, I'm going to stand up, and I said, if I knew it was a blacktop road. I said, I'll take one step at a time. With my hands in the air, my hands in the air, maybe they won't shoot me. So he said, well, I'll go with you. So then we both get up, and he gets a hold of me, and we just took a couple of steps, and then when he ran into some Germans, you know, and then they took us to, a, to another guy that was a German officer was a different story then. He spoke good English, but man, was he stinking rotten mad, boy. But uh, see, I can't see, and I'm like this. Now I'm start, really starting to hurt. And I'm sure Asher had his hands up too. And he takes us to this German officer. Asher's telling me that he's an officer. And this German officer shouts and hollers at Asher, really screams at him. You shot and killed a German officer. And Asher says, I did not, I did not. And this guy is really mad. You know, if the shoe's on the other foot, you know, we're supposed to be getting shot by this time. That's what you do. Good thing I didn't even carry a pistol. And he, he said, we saw you, we saw you. And then I just knew then they were getting ready to kill us. And then finally he says, <coughs> you can put your hands down, I guess that's war. You know, and I dropped my hands. I wasn't a Christian at that time, but I knew about God. And these are two words I said, thank you, Lord. So they took us and they loaded us in a, I don't know if you ever seen pictures of the, the Kubelwagens, the German wagon. So they loaded us in that, in the back seat. And I believe this was one of them that had the roof on it, I thought. They loaded us in the back, but on the floor, was the body of that German officer that Asher killed. So they load us in that truck and we drove a little bit and then the car stopped. German civilians gathered around the car and, and then they're talking. And then I could hear one German speaking like, Zwei Panzer, Zwei Panzer, second armor. He saw my patch, you know? And then there's, our planes are daylight now. Our planes are flying around up there, and I just knew that they were looking for some something down there that's moving. You know, where they come down and strafe it. Then I said to Asher, "That's our next thing here. We're going to get killed by our own planes." 
so then we move on and then we're sl slowing down again and Asher says it looks like it's a a military something or other so we're ordered to get out of the car so we get out of the car and then we go in a little building it is some kind of a military thing Asher's telling me so I'm sitting over there Asher's sitting over here and then there comes a German in there and uh, he's talking of course I don't talk because I can't see what's going on so then he says something to Asher in English. So then he, he said something about, I have to go, I'll be right back. So I'm sitting over there on the bench, really hurting now, man. I well, just can't hardly really hack it. I said to Asher, when he comes back, ask him if he'll give me some morphine. So when he comes back, Asher approached him or said to him, he's really hurting, he's having some pain, a lot of pain. Do you have any morphine? This guy is arrogant and loudmouth too, boy. A very good English man. This is what he screamed out. He said, you Americans are supposed to have everything. Where's your morphine? Till the war was over, until this day, when they write about losing the war, they tell us about the material of the Americans. Yeah. And he said, you Americans are supposed to have everything. So he goes and he comes back with the morphine and he shoots me in the arm here. Then I laid out back on the bench. I started feeling pretty good then and went to sleep. When I wake up, you know, I'm on a litter. Asher's gone. I don't know where I am. I don't even know what time it is. I'm being carried up a flight of stairs on a litter, two guys. And they set the litter down on the floor. And then I hear some girls talking. And I don't know why I thought this, but I thought they were probably nurses. So they're talking between the two of them, the four of them. So then they take me off the, lift me up off the, the litter and stand me up. They take the litter and I hear them going down the stairs. And the, the girls are talking in German. I don't know what they're talking about, but they take all my clothes off and put me in a tub and gave me a bath. Would you believe that? and then put a nightgown on me. Man, I hadn't been in a nightgown, man, since I was a kid. And then they put me in bed. And all the time they're talking and, and what is sad about it, man, the only language being spoken is out of the enemy. Then daylight came, it was Easter, Easter Sunday, 1945. Then the nurses were in there and come over to the bed and do this and that around the bed, you know, and, and speak it to me. And, then the, the German would come in and he'd sit there and, you know, and I'd eat and he'd talk. And, and that went on for, I guess, six or seven more days. Then the German comes in one morning, you know, and he said, your comrades are coming, your comrades are coming. Man, finally going to see you and hear some Americans. And uh, he said, uh, the civilians saw a scout car outside of town. I was, man, scout cards for reconnaissance. Maybe it's my guys. Man, they kind of got me ready to, to get rid of me, you know, to send me out. Man, I was there all day, man. Every moment, every minute passed by, man, they didn't come. Man, night came, and still they didn't come. Then they came running in the, in the building. I guess it was four or five of them right here, running up the stairs. And I guess the Germans told them I was in there, you know. 
Then they wanted to know my name and serial number and my unit and did I need anything and how did they treat me and all this and that. And then it wasn't long after that, an ambulance came by and loaded me up, took me out of there. But it was quite an experience. And you've been listening to World War II tank hunter Don Evans. And my goodness, the details, his tank, the seats, that German wagon with that dead German officer. And we're going to keep telling these stories because we should and because you want them. And by the way, if you ever get a chance, go to the World War II Museum in New Orleans. It is spectacular, a great trip for the family. And you can hear so many of these stories there. World War II tank gunner Don Evans, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we sent our interns on a tour of the American South, and naturally a trip down the South is not complete without looking into the wonderful culinary culture located down where we live, just south of Memphis. And one of the places they went specializes in the history of Southern food and beverage. Here's Monty Montgomery, our Hillsdale intern, with a look into the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage. According to anthropologists, people who study human culture, food is not just an essential component for survival. It is a mode of language and rhetorically represents a culture, country, or even a city. We call this kind of food cuisine, and out of all the cities in the United States, New Orleans has perhaps the most recognizable one. And at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, this is abundantly clear. My name is Liz Williams, and I'm the director of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum here in New Orleans. The anthropologist Sidney Menz defined cuisine, and he said cuisine was food that everyone in a region recognizes, everyone feels they know about, and everyone of every class eats. So if everyone is eating it, whether you're the highest class or the lowest class, that really lets you know that it is cuisine and people's identity and the way they think about themselves is all related to the food. We probably are the only place that has a real cuisine. Every other part of the South has dishes that are things that they ate and that are identified with them. But I think Louisiana has cuisine in the way that, say, Italy has cuisine or whatever. And people always complain that the food in New Orleans from place to place is always the same. And it's like saying there's too much pasta in Italy or something, you know. In many regions of the world, cuisine is a staple of one cultural group. Italian, Chinese, Indian, French. Each of these showcases an important aspect of identity for people living in that culture. But there is something truly different about New Orleans cuisine. Nobody can claim a true ownership over it. One of the reasons that I think that we have a cuisine here, rather than just have ethnic groups who were just coming together, is that we were founded by the French in 1718. At the time all of this was happening here in Louisiana, the French were developing the restaurant. 
and the French were developing cuisine, the haute cuisine that we now think of as French cooking. So all of the people who settled here from France had that mindset in their heads when they got here. And so when they were interacting with the native people who already had a way of cooking, they were bringing the idea of cooking here. So they were happy to learn about all of the foods that were here and learn about how they could be cooked and then they brought their own aesthetic to it. So then you have the Spanish who came later, but now you've got the settled population of people from France. So the Spanish come, they have had um, moors in Spain for hundreds of years. So because of that, they've begun to really use spices in a way that France hadn't. So they wanted a fi more fiery food. Plus, here you are in, in the Americas and you're finding that not only are there spices that are being brought in, but there are chilies here. And so that gives you another level of spices. So the Spanish come, they bring their spices, they bring their taste for rice, they bring certain things that weren't actually here yet. They're literally bringing rice over. So that, that's also part of it. And then you have the enslaved Africans who bring a taste for rice and beans together. Uh, actually, they were rice and peas because in Africa they were peas, not rice, not, not beans. Here we had beans and so they just substituted beans for peas. So all of these things start to come together because the French are just absorbing it all. And so it's not that they had the strongest influence on the actual methodology of cooking or the ingredients or whatever. It was just that they were fusing it together. And then you have here in Louisiana, you have Germans. They were bringing a sausage making tradition. Um, they also were the bakers. There also was a bit of necessity on the part of the original settlers of New Orleans that drove the mass cultural melting pot of food that would eventually become New Orleans cuisine. The French who were first settling here were vagabonds and uh, they were being taken out of prison. And so they were like pickpockets and people in debtor's prison and things like that. They weren't like major criminals. They were just, that's why I'm calling them vagabonds. But they also didn't have any skill. I mean, if you make your living as pickpocket, you probably don't know how to make a loaf of bread. So they had to bring in people who had those skills in order to actually be settled. So the Germans brought that. They brought the sausage making traditions. New Orleans is an old city. And by the time the United States of America gained the Louisiana territory, there was an established food culture. But another massive wave of immigration was about to happen from two other groups, one of which most people would probably not associate with New Orleans. So then in the 19th century, we became American. That meant all these Americans came down and they had all of their own food ways that got incorporated in. And then you had a bunch of Sicilians come. We had probably the largest Sicilian immigration in the entire country. And uh, they took over the French Quarter. It was called Little Palermo. They say that outside of Palermo, the largest population of uh, Sicilian dialect speakers was here in New Orleans and of course they're bringing pasta the interesting thing is of course tomatoes were from uh, the Americas 
tomato went back with Columbus, was adopted by Southern Italy, totally transformed the cuisine of Southern Italy, and then they developed the, uh, the habit and the technique of canning their tomatoes so that they had tomatoes all year. They bring back the concept of using canned tomatoes in their food because we grew so many tomatoes here that we always had fresh tomatoes, so we weren't canning tomatoes, wasn't a big thing. So I think it's interesting that tomatoes came from here, went back to Italy, and then came back. It's just one of those interesting little tidbits. And so then the Sicilian food came here, our snowballs, our practice of stuffing vegetables with, um, with uh, breadcrumbs instead of rice, Things like that, which is a southern thing, is rice in your stuffings. But here we do it with breadcrumbs, and that was all the Sicilian influence. Even today, New Orleans cuisine continues to evolve and bring new groups into the mix, leading to some very interesting food developments. So then we had the big uh, influence of the uh, post-Vietnam War, when we had so many people from Vietnam come to New Orleans. And now we call banh mi Vietnamese po'boys, and you can get a banh mi with fried oysters and pate, you know, because it's all mixed together. And then after Hurricane Katrina, in the beginning, we had so many people from Mexico come here because they were helping to rebuild the city. And so you've got oyster tacos and all kinds of things that were never heard of in Mexico that we were eating and that we are still eating. And so if you can cook well and your cuisine is interesting, come sit by me because we're going to creolize it. And the cuisine of New Orleans has an interesting twist to it. The cuisine hasn't come out of the restaurant, but rather the homes of everyday people living there. So let's talk about something like gumbo. If you ask anybody in New Orleans, where do you get the best gumbo? Nobody is going to tell you a restaurant. Everyone is going to say, at my house or my grandmother's house or something like that, because it's home cooking. It's not restaurant food. And everyone recognizes other people's gumbo. So if I ate at your house and your family fixed gumbo, I would recognize that I was eating gumbo, but it would taste different than the gumbo in my house. And I might learn something from your family's gumbo and take that home and then that might have my gumbo adapt. And this sharing of the food, everyone recognizing it, even though everybody's is different, is something that is really, really an essential aspect of cuisine. Even though the cuisine differs from household to household, that doesn't mean that it splits people apart. It actually brings them together. Another thing that's really important about cuisine is that everyone's opinion is actually respected. So a friend of mine and I did an experiment where we dressed up a lot, carried briefcases in a big high-rise building, and we rode in the elevator. Now you know the protocol for riding, riding in an elevator where you face the door and nobody talks? Well, we decided as we would go into the elevator that we would say to each other, where do you think the best po'boy is? And that started a conversation. And no matter who was on the elevator, people felt that they had a right to participate in that conversation. And it didn't matter, everybody felt the right to enter into the conversation. That is kind of proof positive that we have a real cuisine. 
and you listen to people talk about food on the bus and you listen to people talk about food everywhere and people want to know you know do you sweat your green peppers before you put them in your gumbo or do you put them in raw and let them cook inside all the little nuances of it it's like everybody wants to know and nobody thinks that because you're not educated or because you're poor or because you're old or young or whatever that you don't know everybody knows and great job, Monty. And by the way, for my money and my bride's, Johnny's is the best place to get a po' boy, and I had to add that in. I got married in Nolans with my wife and love the city. We visit often as a family. Great job to Monty, and thanks to Liz Williams of the Museum of Southern Food and Beverage and Liz Williams' book, New Orleans, A Food Biography. Pick it up at Amazon. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love hearing your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And it's time for our On Leadership series, where we hear from coaches, leaders in the military, leaders in business, and leaders in communities across this great country. And this edition is with Bill Koch, whose company Oxbow Carbon has over 1,200 employees and $4 billion in annual revenue. Bill has also led America to a victory in the world's premier sailing competition, the America's Cup, and did it on his first try. But today he brings us some formational leadership stories from his younger days starting at his high school, Culver Academy. At Culver, you know, my first year, I, you know, I got beat up a lot and rassed a lot. Uh, and... When I was at Culver, some of the advisors told me that I couldn't get into MIT. <laughs> and then when I got into MIT, I said, well, you know, you're at the bottom of the class. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't think you'll make it. <laughs> and then I found out that if I wanted to do well, uh, mainly to impress my father, as well as mainly to develop my own skills and my own accomplishments, so I just would work very, very hard. Uh, you know, if I had to go to the bathroom, I'd take a book with me. <laughs> so I worked really hard. And then I graduated with top honors and then got my doctorate's degree from it. And I've always been, seemed to be told that I can't do something. <laughs> you know, being harassed and told I was dumb, an idiot, some other things. So that has become a big challenge for me. I mean, it, it can have two effects. Either you stay a nerd the rest of your life or an idiot the rest of your life, or you uh, take advantage of it. In fact, you know, I probably have a little OCD. <laughs> and I looked at it and said, well, that could either kill me or I could use it to an advantage. So I used it to work very hard. <laughs> and surprisingly, I got more honors than all my brothers put together. <laughs> we just made a couple of them pissed. But I um, wanted to play basketball. I thought the sport was terrific. But in our freshman year, the varsity only won one game. But we as freshmen couldn't play on the varsity in those days. Now they can, then you couldn't. 
And we were a bunch of nerds. And MIT went out and got this one coach from Methuen High School. It was a northern mill town that was dying in northern Massachusetts. And he had the longest winning record of any high school in the country. So MIT recruited him. And when we became sophomores and were playing on the varsity, we also won only one game. And the uh, coach, you know, took a while to learn out the MIT system to <laughs> learn what nerds we are <laughs> and what, uh, how clumsy and awkward we were. So I wanted to play more on the varsity, so I went up and went to a summer camp that he had so I could practice all summer. And also that avoided me going out and working on the ranch. <laughs> and I could possibly chase girls, <laughs> even though it was in, in Methuen. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he, he told me he had a, a new plan. And he came up with a new play. But he came up with only one play, because he said we weren't smart enough to learn more than one. <laughs> These nerds from MIT. And he was also uh, afraid that if, if uh, we all had different plays, we'd get too confused. And then he just drilled us over and over and over in that same play so we could do it in our sleep. So it was, you know, habitual. Then he started giving us variations off the play, which was great. But the most powerful thing he did was that he put people in the right spots to minimize their weakness and maximize their strengths. And he defined jobs. You know, and he said, okay, your, your job is to bring up the ball and dribble it, and dribble it up and set up a play. And then your job is to get rebounds and block shots and put up pivots. And then he said to another guy, all right, your job is to go after the best shooter on the other side <laughs> and rough him up a little bit but he made it very succinct. Well, anyway, in our junior year, we won over half our games, our senior year. We had the longest winning streak in the country and the least points scored against us. And, and so I looked at that and said, that's a, you know, and I sat on the damn bench, <laughs> but it was terrific. I, I learned it because that was one of the best lessons I made, ever learned at MIT. How important teamwork is and focus. And well, the guy also told us, you guys are winners. You know, if you think you're gonna lose, you will lose. You know, if you think you're gonna win, at least you have a 50-50 chance of winning. And I said, that's terrific, you know? And he said, you work all work together. I mean, it's remarkable because not one of us could have even joined, got in any other college. In fact, we probably wouldn't even made intramural teams. <laughs> and, and relying upon your teammates, you know, and not be a star. I think uh, Ren Arbuck said, any of you guys on the pro team, you can, if you want to be a superstar, any one of you can score, score 30 points a night. But if you do, we're going to lose. And instead, we got to work as a team. And if we win, then we're all heroes. And that's so true. And Red Auerbach is one of my heroes, one of my dad's heroes. My dad was my coach.
I was a point guard on an all-state team. And my goodness, learned a lot of these lessons from my coach and a coach named Bobby Knight, who I spent some time with in the most foundational parts of my life. And it was all about these lessons, about knowing your job, being accountable to the job, too. If your job's to rebound and block out that guy, rebound and block out that guy. And your teammates are depending on you. And what lessons learned. And it's amazing, right? This, this industrialist, this businessman, he's talking about college and college sports. And this is why sports is so important for so many people. Because where else do we get these lessons taught? Bill Koch's story, his leadership story, and a coach's story. And the impact that man had on those boys who turned into men. Here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And from 1993 to 1997, Mike Judge captured the spirit of American adolescence, epitomized by two cheap and crummy animated cartoons. Here's Greg Hengler with a story of the highly popular television show, Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) The stupid and ugly have one advantage in life. Teachers expect nothing from them, so they can fly under the usual indoctrination that accompanies education. Uh, what's this crap? Thus, the stupid and ugly, if they aren't entirely stupid, have a greater chance of being original. They're allowed to speak the truth because no one cares what they say. Because they are stupid, they are free. Beavis and Butthead Two supremely stupid and excruciatingly ugly pubescent males who live somewhere in the Southwest were the biggest phenomenon on MTV since the heyday of Michael Jackson. Their laugh, low and breathy variations of (sighs) (laughs) superseded Wayne and Garth's not as the comic catchphrase. An album and a blockbuster movie were made and their merchandising campaign swept across American malls. Mike Judge is the creator of the television series Beavis and Butthead and co-creator of the television series King of the Hill. He also wrote and directed Office Space, the now cult film about IT workers that premiered in 1999. Here's Mike Judge. I'd been interested in animation since I was a kid. I took a cartoon class at the YMCA. At the time, I didn't know what the signs of a junkie were, but now looking back, I'm pretty sure that my cartoon teacher was a junkie. Here's writer David Felton. I think the name Butthead came from some friend of his they called Iron Butt, who just liked to have people kick him as hard as they could in his butt. <laughs> <clears throat> Beavis and Butthead I had drawn in a sketchbook, and I kind of had them lying around, and there was this Sick and Twisted festival that Spike and Mike were doing. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to have a career, but I may never have a chance like this again to just do whatever I want, get as out there as I want. Sometime after I'd done the first two shorts, I thought, okay, what should I should animate something with these guys. And I just went for a walk and came up with the whole idea for the short and the names and everything, I don't know, in probably like two or three minutes. <laughs> I'd remembered a 
kid saying something about frog baseball, which is kind of a sick game, you know. I guess I was thinking about these just out-of-control 14-year-olds that I've known growing up. <laughs> that would be cool. Beavis and Butthead was tested in front of a focus group in 1992. Here's executive producer Abby Turkley. <laughs> we wanted to, to develop it as a series. We tested it. It tested through the roof. I didn't even know what a focus group was. I remember Abby Turkuli calling me and saying, um, you know, we showed it to a focus group up in Chicago, and I've never seen a reaction like this. Best reaction I've ever seen. It was just funny to see because I'm hearing my voice going, huh, you know, and then seeing these kids going, huh. This said to be continued, yeah, the rest. Would you like to see more? Yeah. <laughs> in fact, one kid stayed after and said, can I buy can I buy this out of the tape machine? Okay. Could you like record the tape for us? You you want a copy of the tape? Okay. Here's Judy McGrath, former president of MTV Networks, turned member of Amazon's board of directors. And I thought, okay, I've been watching focus groups for, you know, ten years. I've never heard anyone say, Can I buy the tape? And so it was frog baseball. We tested it with women as well in separate groups. Uh, and I think the women were cooler at first. Hated it. Absolutely hated it. Horrible. It was irritating, irritating to look at. I just thought it was awful. Uh, you just weren't reaching us, dude. I remember Mike's face when I uh, came up to him and I said, guess what, we got the money to do 65 episodes. Well, he turned white as a ghost and said, I can't do 65 episodes. Uh, what? And I said, don't worry, we'll get help. Have you Heimlich the victim? <laughs> no way. <laughs> Boy, the, uh, the first season, uh, they were supposed to have 22 episodes on March 8th, and they had two. So we went on the air with two episodes. It was a show that was every day. And they were horrible. I mean, the first two episodes were awful. I don't know why anybody liked it. We cobbled together an episode out of two of my shorts and a bunch of videos. It's not just about writing, it's about writing stupid, which I felt, felt was a hard thing to do, really. It's like you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. Do you think that's funny, butthead? I hadn't even thought about ratings going into this thing. Remember after the, the first episode aired, and I thought it was awful, and I was like, going to bury my head in the sand, and... Uh, Abby called and said, we got a one last night. <laughs> so, What's a one mean? Uh, you know, and they said, well, usually, you know, that time slot is like a 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7. We got a one. And, oh, good. Then the next night it was 1.2. The next night, it's the same episode airing over and over again. <laughs> and by Friday it was like 1.8. The first week it went on the air, probably the third night, we got phone calls from five or six movie studios saying, you know, let's go right into production and make a movie. We heard from everybody. Retailers wanted to sell the clothes. Winger was going to reunite and go on the road. Warner Brothers wanted to make a live-action Wayne's World-type movie. You know, right away it was, uh, can you give me a Beavis and Butthead? So we l literally put the brakes on everything for a while. At first I was thinking of just, there are these two guys who uh, are just around each other all the time. They don't have a lot of other friends or any other friends. And so there's just these inside jokes that just keep on going to the point where they're just kind of laughing all the time. Okay, Armstrong. Here. Armijo. Present. Baca. Yo. Butt kiss. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you two? 
We've been in school over seven months now, and every single day when I call Daniel Buttkiss's name, you guys have to laugh. Is it really still that funny? Doesn't it ever get old? Are you going to laugh for the rest of your lives every time someone says the name Buttkiss? <laughs> that does it. Principal's office now. Here's head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. They were clearly self-destructive. You've had destructive impulses, right? Uh, no. <sighs> but no matter how miserable their existence were, let's face it, they weren't living a great life. They didn't have a, a nice home. They didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> money. 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 <laughs> Girls didn't respond to them. Hey, baby. <sighs> Other kids made fun of them and beat them up like Todd. But... They always managed to enjoy themselves. I mean, their laughter came through everything. Even when Todd kicks their and they're going, you know, oh, this sucks. You s they follow it up with a laugh. Todd's cool. Yeah, <laughs> I think he likes them. <laughs> they are trying to figure things out, and they, they sort of, in their own way, philosophize about things, and which is what's really great to write like that. I bet they put all the stuff that sucks on in the morning just to, like, get us to go to school? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's working. Usually I would start with the voice and then do the drawing. This one I started with a drawing, and I didn't know what they would sound like. And um, i just drawn ha, ha, ha on there. Um, I started doing that laugh, and I was kind of, like, going, like, this is reminding me of something. Didn't think about it till probably two years into the show that it was, there was a guy at my high school. He was... Uh, Really smart, stoned all the time, but he would just, you'd see him in the hallway, and I would always see him when the hallway was empty, and he'd just start, like, he's one of these guys that he'd start going, hey, Mike. And so when I, was do, when I would do the voice, I would just kind of do the, and I would get, I would be doing it sort of to get into character, to get the voice sounding right, and then I'd go, well, that kind of sounds funny that he's just laughing all the time anyway. <laughs> the Beavis laugh, there was a guy who was, uh, was actually in calculus class, and he was a really smart guy. He's uh, now a nuclear engineer. I hope he doesn't figure out who he is, <laughs> that I'm talking about him. But he, uh, we had a hot teacher, which was unheard of back then. She was a former Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. Uh, anyway, he would get really excited, and he, just, like, he was biting his lip all the time and just kind of going like... <clears throat> <laughs> like laughing at everything she said. So I started out with that laugh, and then I just kind of made his voice sound like the laugh, just like raspy, you know. <laughs> That's right, everyone. If we all work together and respect one another's space, we'll get through this crisis with a newfound sense of community. Get out of the street, you long-haired panty waist! Mr. Van Driesen, that was probably... That's probably my favorite character other than Beavis to, to do the voice for. When I started doing that voice, I wasn't quite sure where I was getting it from. And then I remembered, I used to be a musician, and uh, I played with Sam Myers. And there's this guy from the Santa Barbara Blues Society there, and he was interviewing Sam. He just had this way of talking. He said, um, I remember him saying something like, Sam, it must have been really wonderful for you, having grown up in the Deep South, to be able to travel to Europe and experience some of their culture and share some of your culture as well. And when we come back, more of the story of Beavis and Butthead.
This is Our American Stories, and we're covering the story of Beavis and Butthead, and I just love that line, you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. And that was the mindset Mike Judge and his team had to put themselves in. Let's go back to the rest of this story and return to Greg Hengler. Let's continue with Beavis and Butthead creator Mike Judge and the show's cast of characters. They say great art is difficult to understand, but easy to enjoy. Very good, Butthead. That's right. I wanted to have this, this hippie teacher who just believes that teaching can solve any problem. The, the, only, the problem with teenagers, it's all education. So it's always funny for me to see Mr. Van Driesen just try so hard and believe that they can be changed and that not only do they not learn from his lessons, they usually learn the wrong lesson from what he's saying. Why don't we each tell what impressions we took away from the museum? <clears throat> hey, buddy, what did you take away? <laughs> boy, oh boy. What I wouldn't give for five minutes alone with those little bastards that took my mower. Mr. Anderson, there's probably been five or six people in my life that talked like that. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, actually, and it always seemed like every middle-aged authority figure had a Texas accent. I had a paper out when I was a kid. My brother and I had one. You'd go collect at the end of the month, door to door back then. We went up to the door, and uh, the guy looked at us, you know, and, he, and so it was our first month collecting. He says, well, you ain't my paper boy. My brother said, yeah, well, I know your paper boy quit, and we're the new paper boys. And he, well, I know what my paper boy looks like, and you ain't my paper boy. Finally, my brother said, okay, well, if you don't pay, you know, we're going to have to cancel your cancel the paper. And he said, oh, I'm going to get the paper when the real paper boy comes. And finally he swallowed his pride and he phoned in a subscription. And <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, Dusty, I felt like a one-legged cat trying to bury turds on a frozen pond out there today. Whoa, it's Todd. <clears throat> I know, I know. <laughs> Actually, I think Sam and Chris first suggested the idea of a, of a guy who uh, beats the crap out of him, but they think he's really cool. To me, Todd reminds me of this. Uh, we had a family down at the end of the of our block when I was a kid, and the dad was a truck driver, and a couple of the kids had gone to jail, and they, they were teenagers while we were 10 and 11, and the middle one would just terrorize us. He'd come by on his motorcycle, ride on our lawn, patch the lawn, just scare the shit out of us whenever he could. I would like nothing more than to kill you both with my bare hands. There was a, a band director in ninth grade. I'm pretty sure he was an alcoholic. And he would just, he smelled like liquor in the morning. And he, he was just always, there was just, he was kind of shaking, always angry, always wound up. There was just this noise coming out of him. He was, oh, 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 what are you doing? Uh, watch your m mouth, you little sons of ah, Here's head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. This is starting to suck. <laughs> Do I get into heaven or not? There were Senate hearings in the fall of 93 where uh, Senator Hollings cited us as, uh, as an evil, basically. Was it Buffcoat and Beaver or Beaver and something else? Uh, so clearly he was well-informed. <laughs> Well, I can see you boys aren't like the usual hooligans hanging around here. Like these two fellas, uh, Buff, Code, and Beaver. Boy, they've been nothing but trouble. Trey and Matt, the South Park guys, I remember them saying that Beavis and Butthead to them was like the blues, which was a really high compliment to me because it's, it's that kind of thing where it's just, 
It's the same thing over and over again, but it's good. Here's South Park co-creator Trey Parker. I remember uh, right before at South Park went on the air, actually, Mike took us out to give us advice because he's just that cool of a guy. And uh, he uh, he was sitting there going, well, you know, don't uh, don't let people take advantage of you because <laughs> they're dumb. What's your problem, Beavis? I said stop. Here's rapper Snoop Dogg. First time I seen Beavis and Butthead would probably be, you know, one night I was falling up out of the studio and I came home and uh, just put the TV on MTV and I peeped it out and I was tripping because they was acting the fool. Shut up. You know what I'm saying? I just was tripping off how the two little dudes was acting. At least we have, like, lots of friends. Uh, not really. Are we healthy? Here's writer Larry Doyle. Mike could make almost anything sound funny. That's a very hard quality to do. I thought that Mike could make even the lamest line sound funny. He could say, butthead saying, make it snappy. And there's just something about the way he said it. And, it, you know, it helped a little bit that butthead is a little bit of a lisp. You men want a date. Uh, yeah, we want two of them. And make it snappy. Yeah. <laughs> Get the kite, Beavis. Cool. <laughs> when I was doing the this profile for Rolling Stone, I remember that uh, Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard, was a giant fan of the of the show, and he he happily talked to me not only for the article, but I'd say for about a half an hour afterwards about what episodes I had written and what his favorite episodes were. Oh no, we cannot allow ourselves to think that. Here again, it's Trey Parker. The point of the show, you know, was the great satirical look at sort of where a lot of teenagers in America were at the time. And, and it really was, I think, a very scathing, very harsh, uh, and, and almost a, a very open your eyes, people. And, and, you know, now I know Mike en- enough to know that there was a lot more behind it, you know. And, and Mike is a, a very good guy and a very cool guy. And he actually you know, was, was trying to say something, you know, that, that this, this is starting to be our youth, and if we're not careful, this is going to be our youth. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> you know, Beavis, it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> something that's good, it doesn't matter how great, it doesn't matter how slick it is. You don't need Disney, you don't need these sweet graphics. If something's funny and something's good, you can have it look that crappy, and, and it inspired us in that way just to go, let's just do it ourselves, we'll do it with construction paper if we have to. It really got us into this conversation about satire and how there was no good satire out there, and, and we wanted to do the same thing Mike did. I always reference TV I grew up on because that's the that's still, I guess it's whatever age you are, you're going to, you know, the thing that really cements itself in your head is the first stuff you liked on television. And I, I loved the Beverly Hillbillies, Leave it to Beaver, Andy Griffith show. There's actually a line you could draw between Beavis and Butthead and Andy Griffith in terms of the style of the way the comedy worked. Even though the topics were very different, the, the character comedy was very much the same. Oh, hey there, Master Cleaver. Aren't you supposed to be in school? Well, I guess so. B- but all I know is I'm supposed to come in here and buy some cigarettes. Hey, you wouldn't be buying these for Eddie now, would you? Gee, how'd you know? <laughs> you know, if you look at it from a comedy math point of view, it's really very old-fashioned kind of humor even though at the time it was upsetting people with the topics that it was. I mean, it was, they were just dumb guys. 
And that's a real, there's a real long tradition of dumb guy comedies. <laughs> you guys aren't drunk. You're just stupid. Here's former president of Viacom, Van Toffler. I think it's really about um, being true to what, you know, teen boys do and the prism through which they see life and particularly innocent one, innocent ones like those two. I mean, they are really base, and whatever they feel comes out of their mouths. And um, I sort of was that when I was a teenager, I'd sad to say, but everyone knows Beavis and Butthead. You could relate to it, animated or real. They were part of your life at some point. To me, Beavis and Butthead, when it's good, has that thing, it's a ridiculous premise. Three Stooges, it's the same thing over and over again, but I can keep watching it, Cheech and Chong. I don't, you know, you just kind of want to be there with those guys, and, and I kind of hoped that Beavis and Butthead would be in that category. I'm just glad it's finally over. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, really. At least now we can get on with our lives. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. The story of Beavis and Butthead. It's Mike Judge's story, too. And, of course, he gave us South Park. And, my goodness, what a contribution to American culture. Both of these silly, stupid. The Three Stooges, of course, being the driving force behind all of this. And stuff like it. Teenage adolescence, boys. Mike Judge, Beavis and Butthead, here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories, and now it's time for another installment of The McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life and whose voice, well, you're sure to be captivated by. And today, Bob, who's a Marine, shares a story about his dad, who also happens to be a Marine. After getting my dad settled in the living room for a short visit after my parents' divorce, my father and I sat on the couch to have a beer and watch some TV. Sitting next to him, I noticed how much he'd aged. His six-foot-two-inch frame, combined with his broad shoulders and chest, gave no hint that he'd lost any of his power. But he was heavier and softer. His hair was graying, and the creases in his face were deeper. As he leaned forward on the couch to reach his beer and cigarettes, I had to admire how formidable he still looked. He was aware of what was happening to him, but he didn't care. He had no interest in prolonging a life that he felt had exhausted its excitement and purpose. He'd become bored. There were no more wars to fight, no more women to love or children to raise. Left without these, his passion for life was diminished and his interest in life had become lackluster so he saw no sense in prolonging it. Life had become a still photo rather than a motion picture. His coming to a visit instilled some real anxiety in me. I knew what to expect from him. As the chain of command drove the hierarchy in his house growing up, it would be like that here. He'd want it that way. 
in his house or under his command. He was like a giant redwood tree, and very little grows underneath those trees. They are so big they gather all the sunlight for themselves. He was used to giving orders and having them followed. But now I was 26 years old. I was a former Marine and a senior in college, and I'd been living on my own and taking care of myself for the last eight years. Coming to visit my home would be my dad's turn. It would be his turn to move over. My father would tell us boys that the changing of command from father to son would be inevitable. Let me tell you something, kid, that a day will come when you're not going to want to do what I tell you to do, and on that day, you're going to leave, because if I lose control to one of you, I won't be able to control the other two. That day came when I was 18. I blocked the doorway that he was trying to pass through on his way to the kitchen. I stood in the doorway and my chest really expanded. I thrust it in front of him. We stood face to face looking into each other's eyes. He said, so you think you're ready to take on your own man now? Is that what this little display of yours is all about? Well, let me tell you something. At my age, I don't care anymore about winning or losing. What you need to know is I'm not going to go easy. I'm going to get a piece of you even if I have to bite it off. You're not going to get out of this pain-free. You need to think about whether it's worth it to you. Staring into his unblinking metallic blue-gray eyes, I thought over what he said and decided, yeah, it's time to step aside and let my father go on his way. My father knew that the key weapon in, in intimidation is that just a pinprick of doubt will burst the overinflated balloon of self-confidence. Living in San Francisco in 1974 was very different than the life on the farm my father led as a young man. Life in the city was about freedom and audacity, not regulation and authority. There was nothing that was clean or sterile. Order was not part of the day's routine. And traditional roles? <laughs> well, traditional roles and values best left back in your hometown. My roommate returned from work after 2 a.m. the night my father arrived and joined us at the kitchen table for a drink. Sitting around the kitchen table, my father reached into his pocket and produced an empty key ring. Tossing it onto the table, he said, Look at that. That's something you don't see every day. An empty key ring. No more house. No more office. No more car. I left with only my suitcase. Ellie, yeah, of course, had already given away all my clothes, so it was very little to pack. But at least she didn't throw them out in the street or the driveway like she used to do. Well, she can have it all, including the car payments, house payments, electrical bill, and all that crap that goes with those things. I have my suitcase, and that's all I want. I went overseas with far less. The night after my dad's arrival, I invited my girlfriend and a couple friends over to meet him. Sitting around the kitchen table having a few drinks was an easy way to introduce my father. Sharing drinks at a bar, around a table, talking, that was his element. After everyone imbibed a few pops, he answered questions about his life, and he started to tell a story about his time in the military police. 
I looked over at my girlfriend sitting next to me and I started to run my fingers through her hair. I commented to her about how beautiful she looked. She didn't respond or pay any attention to me, as she seemed fascinated by the story. A phone call from a hotel to the Kingston police asking for help. The desk clerk at a local hotel reported that a woman was with a Marine upstairs in her room, screaming, you murderer, oh my God, you murderer. The door was locked and bolted on the inside, and the hotel clerk was afraid of what he might find inside. He wanted the MPs and the police to come immediately. He continued, in the hall we could hear sobbing inside the room, but there were no other noises. We pounded on the door until she screamed, You murderer, you animal, help, help! We whipped our weapons right out, unlocked the safety, pulled the hammer back, and I heard my body back and shouldered it into the door to get it open. And the three of us exploded into the room with our guns searching for a target. With our weapons locked and loaded, we quickly surveyed the room, but found no one other than the sobbing woman sitting alone on the edge of the bed. She raised her arms. He's in there, she said. As she pointed to the bathroom, he's in there. I ordered the other two MPs to cover the door as I burst into the bathroom. Looking down the barrel of my forty-five, I only saw a drunken Marine sitting on the floor in my gun sights. Sitting between the toilet and the wall with his arm around the back of the water pipe, he looked up at me and with a smile on his face he waved his arm and said, Hiya, Sarge. We all had our guns pointed at him until we realized he was unarmed and certainly too drunk to stand up. I demanded to know, what the hell's going on here, Marine? With his free arm, the Marine pointed inside the toilet bowl and said, look. We all leaned forward to peer into the bowl and to our amazement there was a small orange duckling the couple had won at a local fair swimming around the inside of the bowl. The drunk Marine said, Watch this, Sarge. With the arm around the water pipe, he reached up and pulled the cord on the water closet. The sound of the flush unleashed a torrent of screams from the woman in the room as the water was sucked down the drain. The duck, caught in the whirlpool, started swimming faster and faster against the suction of the vortex in an effort to stay afloat. The faster the water drained, the faster that duck paddled. In spite of his struggle to paddle fast enough, though, to keep him from being flushed down the drain, he was eventually sucked down the drain and disappeared. The bathroom became quiet as the bowl started to refill. Mystified, all eyes remained transfixed on the now empty and quiet bowl which had just swallowed the duckling. What the hell are you doing here? He said he demanded. Marine just sat there next to the toilet laughing so hard he could care less about the prospect that he was going to be arrested and hauled off to the brig. The woman in the other room, she just continued sobbing about her boyfriend's cruelty until the water refilled the bowl. When the water level was restored and the toilet bowl quieted down, out of the depth of the drain, the duck suddenly popped up and continued to paddle around in this porcelain pond as if nothing had happened. As the crowd sat around the table laughing, a friend approached and asked, Hey, is it cool to smoke some pot? I mean, I know your dad was a Marine and military policeman and all that, but is he cool? 
the reality of cultural and generational clash became real clear to me now. If I could have imagined at that moment that his few days visit would turn into his becoming my roommate for the next 18 months, I would have thrown all his clothes out on the driveway and bought him a one-way bus ticket back to my mom. And you've been listening to Bob McClellan, and what a storyteller. And you can just see all this in your head, and I'm sure, I'm sure we all see different things. But my goodness, that little duckling going down, and then the stillness and the silence, and then it emerging, and this culture clash, the 1970s, San Francisco. Yeah, it's probably everything you think when I say that. And here comes this old school Marine to crash with his son. And we look forward to more from Bob McClellan. It's the McClellan Files. And by the way, there are storytellers like this in every community. I bumped into Bob. I was supposed to meet him and talk about this or that. I'd heard he was a good writer. I stayed with him for five hours, and I said, Bob, you need to be a regular contributor on our American stories. And so if you know somebody like Bob, if you are Bob, have stories that are compelling and beautiful and frightening, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. We're interested in hearing them because you are the hour in our American stories. We love hearing the stories from ordinary Americans. Again, the McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories.